You guys have probably all been waiting for this for some time. Um, but you, we've been going through, uh, this will be my 15th in a sermon series on the mysteries of God. So we're finishing that up today with number 14. You remember the first one was kind of an introductory, how important it is that we recognize God's, the importance of God's revelation and how that makes us distinct. Uh, he, he says he sets us apart. Largely he does that certainly by his word and his spirit, but as we learn and grow in the understanding that he reveals to us, we become different than the people around us. So um, no different on, on this last, last one here. It involves the resurrection, but it's a specific piece of it. The resurrection is one of the fundamental Christian beliefs that are listed in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Many Christian denominations espouse it and believe in it, but have difficulty explaining it alongside of their other doctrinal beliefs and teachings. One of, the, one of the critical ones is that most Christians believe that when you die, you go to either heaven or hell. But then they also believe in a resurrection, which kind of makes no sense. If you're a spirit being in heaven, or if you're roasting for eternity in hell, how does the resurrection fit into those two? And they have apologists and others that try to explain that, but oftentimes the the, uh, the concept of the resurrection becomes very convoluted. Let's begin here in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 is where these are, are summarized for us. Uh, verses 1 through 3 uh, in Revelation 20. We'll also read verses 4 through 6, verses 11 through 12, and verses 13 through 15. There are three distinct resurrections mentioned here, and we'll try to pull them out. Verse 1, Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Notice the context here. A thousand years is a reference to the millennium, and he is not released again until after uh, the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must uh, be released for a little while. Now the, the resurrections come into play here. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. So those, these who died in the faith and in fact were martyred in the faith, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, so they would have had an opportunity to do that. Uh, the beast has actually been around for a long time. Um, in concept, if you, when we read and discuss and understand what the, the four beasts, uh, 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 the what we typically call the four horsemen uh, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter 6, as they're described, we recognize that their reach has gone on a lot longer than just the end time. Uh, they're intensified now, so the focus is more uh, clear now on what we've always discussed, right? That, that first white horse is all about deception. Do you believe anything you hear anymore <laughs> in the media, reading the newspaper or anything? I mean, it's really difficult not to be cynical about the news that you hear. Deception is just everywhere. In fact, the uh, congressmen and senators that serve in, in Washington alone just tell you how much the whole thing is run by lies. It's really, it's really sad. And the trust breaks down. It's, it's terrible. That leads to conflict, war. We're seeing that now in uh, 
all over the world. You're hearing a great deal about one, which I won't mention, but there are others that you don't hear of because the media decides not to, not to tell us about them. Uh, but you'll hear rumors of them, which Christ told us to watch for, wars and rumors of war. That then leads into economic disaster. We usually refer to the third horse as, as the horse of famine. Famine is certainly a result of uh, economic disaster, but it's really describing an individual with uh, scales in his hands and uh, quoting inflationary prices and so on. It's talking about financial manipulation, and, which is just, it's another uh, difficult um, thing to trust in this day and age. And then the last one is a horse of death, not just pestilence, but death by all kinds of means, death as a solution. And you've got any number of people today, especially some of the elitists who, who believe the world is overpopulated at 7.2, 7.3 billion people. Um, but, but we know that that's not the case. I mean, one drive from Twin Cities to Duluth will tell you how much land and trees there still are. And a, a la largely, uh, environmentalism believes that some of the woes that we face now are based upon overpopulation. So... Those are the four horsemen they've been riding a long time. They're simply intensifying now. For some reason, I'm very dry today. So now this, this description of the first resurrection that comes after all of this. Um, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had, oh, I read this, about beheaded, uh, and did not worship the beast. So they, they, these would have had an opportunity to worship the beast, uh, again, not just at the end time, but in, in the time uh, throughout the past uh, 2,000 years, as it's been described, or his image, and not receive the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They're mentioned early in Revelation as well. For the sake of time, we won't go back and look at that. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. That's that 1,000-year reference to the millennium. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So this is, this is the first resurrection, what we previously described. The thousand year, at the end of the thousand years, as they finish, there is another, the rest of the dead coming up. Verse six, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Again, that's, uh, that's uh, said twice for emphasis, after the thousand years. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog, Magog, to gather them to battle, uh, whose numbers as the sand of the sea. This is involving all the entire world now. Let's look at verse, uh, uh, verse 11 and 12 now. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from, from whom from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is obviously a reference to the great white throne judgment. Uh, the, this would be called, in this order, second resurrection. As we as you, as you examine the concept of resurrection, there have been any number of people resurrected over the years, but back to mortal life. It happened in the time of Christ. It happened under uh, uh, Elijah, uh, raised somebody from the dead and so on. Uh, but the, the three that are re specifically referred to here are of human beings. Christ is also referred to as the first resurrection. He was the first one resurrected to spirit, immortal spirit. 
but the ones coming afterwards are all referring to human beings, and this is, um, this is the three. So the first one are those who are with Christ at his coming. They are, they are resurrected to immortal spirit life. This group here, though, is described as coming back physical. They're standing before God, and God's judging them. There's a physical thing going on here of their life, an evaluation of their life. Uh, and then the last one, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. This is a clear distinction between those who were resurrected prior to this. This is a separate group. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. That's the grave and the earth. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and the third of the resurrections. So we have uh, each one describing something very different. They are resurrected from, uh, not, not all from being dead. You'll find out here there's a group that are, uh, you can refer to it as a resurrection, but they're actually changed. We'll read about that in a moment in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, but mostly given life again, given life again. Uh, let's, go to, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 here. It, within 1 Corinthians 15, Paul here makes a revelation that constitutes this last of the mysteries. It's not last in God's order. It's just the last one we're covering in the 14 that God reveals. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's first read verses 20 through 22. And we get a feel for uh, the threefold nature of this, of this uh, plan of resurrection that God has. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's because he was resurrected, the grave could not hold him. He was sinless that we now, being in Christ, have the opportunity to, uh, uh, to be resurrected as well. Um, verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So every human being will have their opportunity to understand what God is teaching, what his plan is, their opportunity to be a part of it, and their opportunity to be part of the family of God forever. But it's a staged process. We'll read about that in a moment. So what's being referred to as we go through this, we'll see that it's um, um, the first fruits who are called first fruits, raised to spirit at Christ's return. That's the first resurrection. Secondly, all others who have died uh, are raised to flesh in the great white throne judgment. And then lastly, all remaining after that, raised either to eternal life in the kingdom of God or eternal death in the lake of fire. Those are the three that we're speaking of here. That, that, that uh, great white throne judgment is often uh, described as Ezekiel 37 being resurrected to flesh and blood human life again. Now in Hebrews 9 verse 20 is a uh, 27. Hebrews 9 verse 27 is a, a quote that we're all very familiar with. It says, it is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So there is this, this what is appointed to all men is this process. We live, we die, we're resurrected, and we're judged. That's, every, that's, that's what every human being has been appointed to. However, the Apostle Paul had a mystery to reveal as he's talking to, uh, to about this. Though, that, though every human being is appointed to this process of live, die, be resurrected, and be judged, there's a group that is not. 
And there in 1 Corinthians as well, verse 15, I'm sorry, 51. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. And notice how this is described by Paul. Behold, I tell you a mystery, a mystery. That is the Greek word mysterion. And we've been talking about that for the last 14 sermons on this subject. We shall not all sleep. Now, we recognize that sleeping here is a reference to death. We shall not all die. That excludes this group. This group excluded them from what we just read, that they will, be, uh, they will live, they will die, they'll be resurrected from death, and they'll be judged. This is a different process that some are going through, that he's describing. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Notice he doesn't use the word resurrect there, because if someone is alive, and as he describes them here, uh, they will be changed to something else. Spirit, eternal spirit. In a moment, he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Uh, at the last trumpet is the key uh, focal point of knowing when this is going to happen and, and recognizing that this is all happening at once. There are those who, don't, who ignore that and move into some discussion of using the same scriptures to support a concept of the rapture, which is just not biblical. And this is one of the reasons. These all happen at the same time. We know when the last trump is. That's when Christ returns. That's when the kingdom of God is set up. And that's when this change happens. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Incorruptible. No longer capable of dying. Not flesh. If they're still flesh, they're still corruptible. And we shall all be changed. There's that word again. Changed. Not necessarily resurrected. This first resurrection, as we call it, includes those who are dead, who have died, and those who will not see death. They'll be changed from physical human beings to spirit human beings with no sense of death. It happens immediately, in the twinkling of an eye, he says. Both of these changes will be instantaneously, uh, instantaneous to the people experiencing them. Even those who have died, their next waking conscious thought will be this experience. It's one of the things we encourage one another so much around when, the, when someone dies. Um, both will be instantaneously changed, both groups, the dead and those who are still alive, to eternal spirit with no mention here of an after judgment, which was appointed to all men once to die. So that this group is excluded from that. Who, are, who is this group? Um, and why does God not judge them as he would judge the rest of humanity? As I said earlier, this is our last message in our series on the 14 mysteries of God. Again, there are 15 sermons up there. The first one was simply an introductory and helping us to understand how important and how distinctive we are because God has revealed these things to us and others can't understand them. Um, we've been, been given a special understanding that is only given by God's revelation. It's something we need to appreciate and, and live within. Again, previously we've examined 13 of these mysteries. We first examined God himself. He is a mystery to most on this planet. We examined the mystery of his will, his wisdom, his Christ, the mystery of his kingdom, the mystery of the faith, the mystery of his holy institution of marriage, the mystery of Christ in his church. Now, see how in every, in every one of these, I would encourage you to look into what other professing Christian churches say about these things and believe about them. And then recognize how different and distinct we are from them because of God's revelation. Because we understand these things and they, they can't. 
And there's a reason for that. We've talked about that in every one of these messages, and, and uh, we'll talk about it today. We've looked at godliness, which is a mystery as well, and lawlessness. We've looked at the Gentiles as heirs, the seven stars and lampstands of, of, of uh, Revelation 1, and the mystery of the woman and the beast of Revelation 17. And it's been, what, a year? When did we first start it? Maybe more than a year. I think with distractions and other things going on, I haven't spoken on this for a couple of months, so um, we are wrapping it up today. Now, with each one of these, we have learned to better appreciate the distinctive blessings these revelations provide for those who order their lives by them. That's critical. You can't just know them. You have to be living within those revelations because they change who we are. It's like, it's like being a Sabbath keeper. I've said this before that we're Sabbath keepers, but that's not just about one day a week. We're Sabbath keepers. We're Sabbath keepers every day of the week. We keep the Sabbath one day, God's appointed day, but we live like Sabbath keepers all week long. It's the same thing when we understand these mysteries, think on them, dwell on them, study them, try to understand them. It provides a life for us. It, it teaches us how we're supposed to live under God and his word. Um, we have also learned why these, these remain mysteries, though, to all who do not order their lives by them. And until they do, they will not be able to understand God's revelation, even if it was as clear as day to them because they would not be able to live them, and that's what it takes. You have to be changed by them. Today we will look at the mystery of this first resurrection as Paul describes it. What is this, what is this element in the first resurrection of those who will not sleep, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye? Though many may know of this first resurrection and could even quote it academically, again, only those who are preparing for it can understand it. Let's look at the first resurrection here for a moment. And look at just some bullet points here. We'll turn to a couple of scriptures, but we read through Revelation 20 uh, and the critical verses that help us understand also 1 Corinthians 15. Note, these notes are, are distinct about the first resurrection. This takes place at the second coming of Christ, at the last trumpet. We read that. We, you need to, we need to connect those two to make sure that we recognize the timing here and so no one can deceive us on this. Secondly, the second death has no power over the first resurrection. So the concept of being a, a second death is largely misunderstood by many, even who believe in a resurrection, though they can't explain it very well. They recognize the concept of a, of a death, but not a second death. That's a, for those who believe this and practice it, we recognize there's a bigger death than the death we actually have in the flesh. They are called the first fruits, this group. In fact, let's look at that. Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Those who are resurrected at this time are called first fruits because they are resurrected with the first fruit, which is Jesus Christ. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Um, uh, and with him, 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000, again, those who were sealed, um, uh, those who 
uh, followers of Christ, we'll describe them in a moment, 144,000, and those who were redeemed from the earth. That's only done by Christ. He, he's the only redeemer. Verse 4, uh, these are the ones who were not defiled with women. It's a spiritual reference of those who were loyal to their betrothed and did not cheat, um, but stayed loyal throughout their lives to their husband. For they are virgins, they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Again, the firstfruits. You can also look at these references, Romans 8, Romans 8 and verse 23. Also James 1 and verse 18 making reference to them as the firstfruits. They are also called the church by Christ, Matthew 16 and verse 18. They are also referred to as the called, the chosen, and faithful in Revelation 17 verse 14. This is all, the, all that are in this first resurrection. They are also called the children of God in 1 John 3 and verse 1, godly offspring. They are also called the bride of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. Also, Revelation 19, verse 7, who has made herself ready. Um, and they are also called those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Revelation 14, 4, we just read that. This first resurrection includes only those who died in Christ and those who remain alive in Christ at his coming. They understand what makes the first resurrection a better resurrection and have accepted eternal judgment in this age so they can realize that first resurrection. Look at 1 Peter here. 1 Peter. And this is a clue as to why they are not judged after they are resurrected. They're being judged now. 1 Peter 4, and they willingly accept this. This is not something that's forced on them. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin for all of humanity at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Because this group has been judged by God in this age, he will have no need to judge them in the next. So this resurrection is to spirit life, eternal spirit life in the God family going on forever. It's a resurrection to spiritual immortality. And there's no, there's no place afterwards, once they're raised from the dead, for judgment. They've already been judged. The, the process is very different for them. Let's discuss this change now. What would this change be like? Well, it happens in two stages. First, there will be those who are changed from the dead to immortal spirit. And then secondly changed from living flesh and blood to immortal spirit as well. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll read verses 13 through 18. Paul here is describing this process in a little more detail. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you should sorrow as others who have no hope. Knowing this gives us a sense of hope. It pulls us through grief 
It helps us to deal with the difficult things in life, looking forward to this and living uh, within the, the hope it brings. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So those who have fallen asleep in the faith, their body returns to the dust that gave it, where it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Unconscious, waiting their change, as Job said, and I think David referred to as well. Um, then when Christ returns, they are the ones who are resurrected first. Let's, let's go forward. Um, for this we say to you, verse 15, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, again, in their graves, who have died. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, there's that reference again, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Some of those who believe we stay in the air with him don't understand the references to uh, ruling on the earth with him, alongside of him, during the millennium that we just touched on earlier, other references in uh, Revelation 5 as well, Revelation 10. Um, this, this order is interesting. Um, so there are those who died in the faith, just a natural form of death, and they, they are in the graves and they died faithful. They went through trials, God judged them in this age, they went to their grave in the faith, they await their resurrection. Again, their next waking thought is Christ's return, what we've just described here. Right now they're just asleep, unconscious. Then there's a second group, those who died being martyred for the faith. That doesn't just include everyone who's been martyred to this point in, in history for what they believe in, but also those who are yet to be martyred. This is a group, a remnant of the church, who will have to go through what we refer to as the Great Tribulation, the two-and-a-half-year wrath of Satan that comes before the year or so of the day of the Lord, a three-and-a-half-year period, where most, if not all of them, will be killed. Uh, when you read those references in the book of Revelation, you see that it's, it's talking about those, a great multitude that is resurrected from death. Uh, and they came through the, the, uh, the tribulation, the hour of trial that will test them. I think we'll read some verses on it a bit later. But um, keep in mind this distinct separation between these two, because you'll see the separation develop as we move forward. Um, and there's a reason for it as well. So some will die in the faith yet ahead of us, and there are already those who have died prior to this. Um, some will have been caped. And when I refer to those who have died prior to this, look at uh, Isaiah 57, verse 1 here. This is very much described as a place of safety for them, the grave. Um, and that's the majority that have been Christian thus far. There are, there are, uh, again, they're described as an innumerable multitude that come out of the, the great tribulation, but they're also described as those who died in the faith prior to this. Isaiah 57, verse 1. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. This is what God has been doing to this date um, throughout the history of mankind. Um, 
Some will have been kept safe in the grave throughout time. They will be included in this group of the dead who will be resurrected at Christ's return to be at his side, be part of the bride of Christ. The second group, changed from living flesh and blood to immortal spirit, are still alive at the return of Christ. This is significant uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and, and we have to see this in reference to, okay, those who will be going uh, uh, to a, play, a physical place of safety during that three and a half year period, and those who will not, what, what sets them apart? Because that's what we need to be focused on now. Uh, let's go to Revelation 12 and, and, and review that. I, we've been here before uh, many times, I, and I'll just touch on these as we go through them. Revelation 12, uh, the whole chapter is significant here. We'll start in verse 1, end in verse 17, and we'll skip through this. Uh, Revelation 12 and verse 1 describes a woman uh, appearing in heaven, so not, not necessarily physical, a woman clothed with the sun, symbolic of those who were physical, well, not there's something, a spiritual aspect to this. Clothed with the sun would make her bright, bright as the garments that Christ is wearing. With the moon under her feet, the moon is often used as a reference to um, spiritual Israel or the church of God. And on her head, a garland of 12 stars, significant to um, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel around her head. So this is, this is how we understand it is spiritual Israel. It's not Mary. Mary was never clothed like this, never described like this. But it's, it's talking in Revelation 12 about birthing Christ and using the church as a model for doing that. The church is the bride of Christ or the betrothed um, as God impregnated Mary. Uh, God the Father impregnated Mary for the birth of Christ. The, the church is in, in its womb is the place where uh, individual godly offspring are being reared to the time when they will be born into the kingdom. Uh, so the, the analogies here, the metaphors is clear. Verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and gave uh, in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman uh, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. All this is symbolic. Obviously, Satan, the devil, or Lucifer, who became Satan, drawing a third of the angels with him to rebel against God, and then all of them being cast to the earth. Um, The dragon standing before the woman, waiting to gobble up the child as soon as it's born, that happened uh, with uh, some of the things that Herod did and some of the things that, that uh, uh, Joseph and Mary experienced after Jesus was born. But it's also symbolic of what happens in a spiritual life. When someone is baptized, I spend a great deal of time helping them to understand beforehand what they're facing and what will happen. Because if, if Satan takes you out now before you're baptized, you'll have your opportunity in one of the other resurrections. But if he... If he takes you out after you're baptized, in other words, gets you to walk away or sin or turn around or do something else, you just took yourself out of eternity. There now is only one place for you, which is the great, uh, the, the lake of fire. Um, so what's described here after this is how she's been protected. Then there's this war that uh, breaks out in heaven. Satan is cast to the earth. He, he persecutes the woman. She's given two wings of a great eagle in verse 14 that she might fly off into the wilderness to her place. Don't get too 
don't get too um, caught up in trying to understand wings of a great eagle. It's simply a reference to God will do it miraculously. Okay, don't be looking around for the eagle. There's the big eagle. Maybe I can ride him to the place of safety. That's not it. It's not a symbol on an airline. I mean, God can do all those kinds of things to make it obvious to us, but we don't know specifically what that is. We just know it'll be miraculous. So she flies off into the wilderness to her place. It's a place prepared for her uh, for times, uh, two years, a time, one year, times, two years, which is three, and then half a time, three and a half years. And all those connect to all those other other issues, the Great Tribulation and the combination with that with the um, Day of the Lord. And they're hidden from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent then attacks and goes out after them. The earth helps the woman in verse 16, opens it up and, and swallows the flood that, that Lucifer, Satan, uh, sent after her. And then verse 17 is critical. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Again, this is the church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. What does that mean? Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's the difference between those who are taken to a place of of physical safety in the wilderness, prepared for them, and those who must remain a remnant, so to speak, of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ? You would think that would describe those who were taken to a place of safety as well, but something else would describe them. And in the context of the entire chapter, it's about birthing Christ. You can keep the commandments of God, and you can have the testimony of Christ without actually being changed by it, which is what all of these mysteries being revealed to us have taught us, that alone as knowledge, they're not going to help us. They have to become part of how we live, how God's law is written on our hearts, how Christ lives within us. Our actions are what matter. Our choices are what matter. That's what builds the character that enables us to stand at Christ's side and help and assist as his wife uh, throughout eternity in, in, in growing more offspring, which is what God wants. He loves godly offspring. Um, those, those who do not birth Christ within um, uh, will not be prepared enough. They need additional preparing, additional curing. Both will eventually birth Christ within, otherwise they would not be part of this, this resurrection. Um, and what is, that? what is that in us? Um, do we have to be crucified? Do we have to be buried, uh, tortured? Any of the things that he went through, it has much more to do with developing Christ's submission to God, his obedience to God, his nature and character, love, joy, peace, patience, the very nature of the God family, that's what readies us to marry into the God family. Um, when we develop that, we will be in this place of safety. Those will be the ones who will be kept alive and will be alive until Christ returns. Those who do not develop Christ within will be taken away or will not be taken away. Um, they will have to buy what, is, what he describes in Revelation 3 and verse 10 as gold tried in the fire. Let's, I wasn't going to go there, but let's do that. Revelation 3 and verse 10. That, that is a first reference to those who will be taken away. Th- these are those described as the church of Philadelphia. Um, and they're, 
their chief tenets are they, they have a little strength, meaning they rely on God and his strength. They keep his word, and they do not deny his name. They also endure, and as a reward for their endurance, he says this in verse 10, because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. As the evil of this world continues, and the deception of this world continues, the testing has got to be much more, much more severe. The heat of that fire that's cooking the gold and scraping off the dross, the hotter it gets, the more dross there is. And uh, there are those who, who don't need a lot of that heat for God to, take, to get them down to pure gold. There are those who will need more. That's described now in Revelation 3 and verse 18, the church at Laodicea. He says uh, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Gold tried in the fire is a reference to the great tribulation, or, or severe tribulation in general. So there will be a separation at the outset of the great tribulation. Those who have birthed Christ, God will protect alive in a place of safety. Those who have not will have to go through severe trials up to and including death. Um, so when we look, as we look at this mystery that Paul is revealing to us here about how some will be alive at Christ's return and some will be dead, we need to understand the difference between the two. I want to make a note here, I mentioned it earlier, that this is not anywhere near associated to a rapture which, again, many deceived have accepted. Um, Christ returns to the earth to establish the kingdom of God uh, simultaneous with the resurrection of the saints. I'll just give you some references here. Zechariah 14, the entire chapter, describes that these are simultaneous. Matthew 24 and verse 27. Also references that, that we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Uh, Revelation uh, 11 and verse 15. And also in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, and also verse 27. Those, those saints that are resurrected from the dead are joined by saints who are already still, they're living, still living to meet Christ in the air as he returns to the earth. Now the Bible further shows that God protects his people um, on the earth during the Great Tribulation. Um, and, and, and there's a reason for that, because all, all prophecy has to be fulfilled. Go back to Matthew 16 here. Matthew 16, we'll read verses 15 through 18. Matthew 16, verse 15. We're all familiar with what's happening here. Uh, uh, Christ uh, um, is, is discussing with his disciples um, who he, who he is, verses uh, 13, 14, 15. He says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter answers, you are the Christ, in verse 16, the son of the living God. Then Jesus says this in verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, pointing to himself, I will build my church. The gates of, of Hades shall not prevail against it. That, that is a significant statement. In the context of what's being discussed here, 
he says the church is never going to die. I remember reading this before I was, uh, I even knew there was a church. I was trying to keep the Sabbath on my own and trying to learn from the scriptures all on my own, which many of you probably tried to do. But when I read that, I realized there's a church out there. There are flesh and blood human beings trying to live God's way now in this age, and I need to be with them. And then I read Leviticus 23, where God commands us to be with them. Come together before him on his Sabbath. Hear his proclamation. Learn and grow together as his bride. He wants that for us. That's who commands it. This, this is significant that there have to be people alive. That's why there is a place of safety. God can work through the deaths of many. He shows that because many will be resurrected from the dead. Probably, certainly, the vast majority but in this case, there have to be living individuals at the end to fulfill the scripture. There will always be the church in this age. That's incredibly encouraging. When he promised that in building his church that the gates of the grave wouldn't prevail against it, he, that it means that the church would remain until he came. Only the repentant and faithful that are immersed in Christ and God's spirit that are loyally preparing for the first resurrection and willingly live, willing to live under God's judgment. It's a choice that we make when we come in. So we might have this discussion with people who are baptized. You are now being judged in this age. You're choosing willingly that God will judge you as he will judge everybody, but in this age, while you are a flesh and blood human being right now. And for the reward, if you endure, keep his word, don't deny his name, have his strength, you will be there at his return. You'll be at his side Married to him into the God family. That's his promise. Uh, to all others, this concept, this idea within the first resurrection is a mystery. Even explaining it to them, something in them would reject it or deny it. Something in them would prevent them from understanding it and truly living it. Because hearing it is not enough to understand it. It has to be written in our hearts. All of these mysteries describe who we are. They describe what God wants us to be. They're the things he wants on our minds because he wants them changing us, studying his word and understanding their impact on us. Like his holy days and his Sabbath, it molds us into the people we're supposed to be, his offspring, his bride to marry into the family. We used to say this all the time, that the Bible is written in code. Remember that? It's a code that... Some people are given the key to and others are not. That key that is needed to understand it is the gift of God's revelation. And the, and, and the ability of a contrite heart, poor in spirit, one who trembles at his word, that God grants through his spirit for one to understand it and live within them so they can be changed by them. They're not just knowledge. They're, they're not just something we know that nobody else does. And they, you should, we should all see the fact that we know these and keep these so well that we see a clear distinction between anyone who calls himself Christian and anyone who is a Christian. In, in 1 John, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 3 and, and for the first six verses of chapter 4, we are told that we, are, we need to discern spirits, which are of God and which are of not. And the way we do that is we see confessed by people by what they do, by who they are, versus what they say. They can say anyone can say they're a Christian, doesn't make them one. We have to look deeper and understand that, even for ourselves. We can't just say, I can't just say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Prove that. 
Well, we've got another six weeks before the Passover or so. You have six weeks to prove Christ is in you. That sounds like a difficult thing to do, but it's not. If your spirit led into all truth, God will lead you through that, and it'll be one of the most encouraging realizations you'll ever have in your life, that Jesus Christ is still in you, hopefully more than he was 40 years ago. It's the practice of these things that he reveals to us, these mysteries that others can't understand, that helps us to see that. That key to understand those mysteries and all of his word is the gift of God's revelation, given to the contrite of heart and poor in spirit, those who tremble at his word, to whom he has immersed his sons into his son's blood and spirit. And that's what we commemorate the night of the Passover. All these things should come to mind, the changes that God's making within us, the totally different people that we are since the first time that he called and chose us, the concept of living faithfully in his word and within the mysteries he reveals changes us, makes us more alike. Otherwise, we would be complete and utter strangers. This and his spirit is the only thing that binds us. The only thing that binds us. Now, God's delineation between those he has given to know his mysteries, those he's called out of this world, um, versus those who do not understand these mysteries, is that significant? There's a tendency we have lately to say, well, we don't want to put anybody else down, which we're not doing. We're lifting ourselves up, and not to try to separate, but to try to draw closer to God. There's a real huge difference between those two motivations. We can't just say, well, they're a nice person, and in many ways they're more Christian than I am. It doesn't make them Christian. Plenty of people out there doing good deeds, but for all the wrong reasons. They're not growing in the nature of Christ. It's deeper than that. It's deeper, much deeper. To understand these mysteries and other things within the scriptures is not just a privilege for us, brethren. It's a responsibility, one that inspires change and growth within us. In Isaiah 55 and verse 11, you can just write this down. Uh, Isaiah 55 and verse 11, God says that when he reveals his word, when his word goes out, it does not come back to him empty now, that could be taken two ways, because we're human and that's the way we think. Um, number one, uh, uh, we're not doing an effective enough job if it's not doing what he wants us to do if we are speaking his word. I, uh, I, I, uh, I knew a young man who once had a Bible study. His uh, co-workers asked him, because he was knowledgeable in the scriptures, to have a Bible study with them. And he asked me what he should do. I said, well, by all means, if they're asking, you know, but watch it because uh, you, should, you should see fairly soon whether they're responding or not, whether they're doing what you guys are reviewing. And a year later, he called me back and he said, it's just not working. Um, they come, they listen, they talk, they have a good time. But not at, they're learning about things like the Sabbath, but they're not changing. They're learning about God's holy days, but they're not keeping them. They still go back to their Easter and their Christmas. It's like everything that he's discussing was just not even heard. That can happen to us too. When God sends his word out, not, not that we make the choice to do that, but that God makes the choice to do that. When he sends his word out, it does not come back to him empty. He doesn't send it out in vain. What about us? Do we hear it 
and not allow it to change us? Are we not, are we not excited about the change he wants us to make? Becoming more Christ-like in nature? You know, shedding some of the, the baggage we carry through life from our own sins, our own bad choices. Some of what Satan dumps on us all the time. As we move forward to the Passover, approach your examination of yourself, not of others, but of yourself, with an understanding of what God's revealed to you. Do you value that enough to put those things into practice? Because that's the definition of the faith, believing God enough to do what he says. Um, Once he reveals them to us, we don't just hold them there. Um, There's so much to learn about them. I barely scratched the surface And we've spent over a year on 14 of these mysteries. And I'm pretty sure that's exhausted, 14. Um, I I spent a great deal of time making sure there weren't others. Um, We've spent that time, over a year, developing and understanding them. We barely scratched the surface on each one. They they could be committed as a lifetime of study. And it would not be a wasted lifetime. Once God's child, led by his spirit into all truth, is able to know his mysteries... Um, they are determined to know them, and more so they are determined to be changed by them. To all others, they will always remain a mystery. At this, uh, as this age, I should say, uh, sprints to a close. Seems like it's ramping up, doesn't it? Moving so fast, it's hard to keep up with it anymore. Brethren, we can never forget how God has set us apart by the revelation of his word and the leadership of his spirit to apply it. It is in living within his revelation, his revealed mysteries, that makes us who we are. 